Thank you very much. Uh, and of course, I'm delighted uh, to be here to address uh, this group. Could I, could I uh, begin by emphasizing that what I'm going to attempt to do this afternoon is give a non-academic practitioner's viewpoint uh, because uh, I in no way seek uh, to uh, uh, be an academic. I've got no academic qualifications bar the basic one that one requires to be a barrister. Uh, and so this is really based on my experiences and to some extent opinions on my years at the ICTY. Now, Miles has given you my background. I'm going to go into it in a little bit more detail because it's important in terms of the perspective that I, we have in the title to this particular address. So I was called, you heard, to the bar in 1985 and then spent 20 years doing very regular English criminal work. And I used the word English barrister not because I am English, I do happen to be English, but of course because I'm a member of the Bar of England and Wales as opposed to anywhere else. So that was my use, choice of the use of the word English, let me make that clear. But I did regular work defending and prosecuting, uh, uh, largely criminal work, uh, 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 and nothing very out of the ordinary. And I arrived in 2005 at the ICTY very much by chance. Mine uh, was a somewhat unusual story. Basically, the right place at the right time. Someone needed a person, uh, and I fitted the bill and was prepared to go. Um, I should emphasize I had very little knowledge of the Balkans, and, and arguably even less still of international humanitarian law or international criminal law. I was very much an outsider and it was that perspective that I took into it uh, as I began my time there. And then I spent the next five years pretty well full time defending in two trials which as it happens and conveniently for me were back to back. The Kryzhnik trial which in fact I joined about halfway through believe it or not and then the Guevara trial, which was part of the seven defendant Popovich et al. trial, uh, 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 which lasted the best part of three plus years. Uh, uh, and as I've already said, uh, I, I saw the process through the eyes of a defence practitioner. And for the purpose of this particular talk today, I've chosen three areas for brief analysis and comment. The first is the defence in general, particularly defence lawyers. The second is the defendants, or the accused as they're called at the ICTY. The third are the judges. And then finally, I'd like to make some comments about self-representation. Now, before I got to the ICTY, as I understand it, the defence so I'm told, were often seen as an intrusion. Uh, and uh, unlike pretty well everyone else in the building, judges, prosecutors and the rest of the staff, the defence lawyers and their staff are not UN employees. And I'm told that when uh, uh, they first got there, they weren't even allowed to use the canteen. And certainly over my time at the ICTY, there are signs everywhere, 
in bold saying no entry to red badge holders. And the red badge holders, of course, were defence lawyers. Nothing like impartial justice. <laughs> no, well, precisely, and that's exactly it. So, 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 so uh, institutionally, yes. uh, uh, the place, to my view, had a problem from the outset, and that continued to be the case. And I have little doubt that on occasions the prosecutors were far too close um, to judges and certainly the staff of judges. Uh, and basically, if one had a career in the United Nations, uh, one could crisscross between the Office of the Prosecutor, the Registry, and Chambers. Now, it is also fair to say that one or two defence lawyers have been prosecutors or have worked for the court and have moved into the defence. I don't think anyone I know, have, having been a defence lawyer, then went back into the UN system, but a few came out of the UN system and joined the defence bar. But that's precisely the point, as this gentleman's made. We were outsiders and different to everyone else. It's worth saying that, in essence, in a legal aid case, and most but not all of the accused persons rely on legal aid, they get a lump sum from the Office of Legal Aid and Detention, or I think it was called, it may have changed its name, I think it's called Office of Legal Aid and Defence now. And they assign counsel, and they give counsel this budget, and with that budget, counsel has to choose and run a team. Uh, 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 although the staff that counsel choose will always be vetted to some extent by the court, by OLAD that is. But that's a detail, and what I really want to go on and discuss is who are the counsel? Because clearly the counsel representing the defendants are a crucial part of the courtroom process, and the quality of the defence lawyers are very mixed. There is virtually no quality control, let alone quality assurance. There are fairly strict rules as to the number of years practice that one needs to have done either domestically or internationally before one can get on the list. In reality, that's domestically because certainly at the ICTY, no one, say perhaps one lawyer I know, had effectively got on the list through international practice. One had got on the list through years of practice in one's domestic system. But basically, if one had fulfilled enough years of service in one's own domestic system, one could get on the list. Now, as you probably know, pretty well all, uh, in common with all international criminal courts, advocacy can be conducted in either English or French with simultaneous translations between those two languages. That, of course, let's be fair, makes it difficult, if not impossible, for a lawyer whose first language is not English or French. And when I used to hear lawyers whose first language was not English or French advocating in English generally, occasionally in French, I had nothing but the greatest admiration for them because, of course, it's a very major drawback to be unable to use one's main language. There weren't many people that did that, but there were a few, and I repeat, one has nothing but admiration for them. 
Um, it's worth mentioning that there are, in fact, very few lawyers at the ICTY who use French. Uh, digressing for a moment, the position at the ICC is clearly different, largely because most or many of the situations involve French Africa, and therefore uh, 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 French has a far more dominant role in that particular system. But at the ICTY, um, English was very dominant, and as I've said, there were not many, there were a few, but there were not many uh, English, uh, on French speakers who were available to uh, represent defendants. Now, on top of that, and it's a theme throughout really this speech and uh, any other talk that I, I might give on the ICTY, is a divide between the common law world and the civil law system world. And that reflects particularly in the advocacy because since the ICTY runs a recognisable adversarial system, it's important for any advocate to be competent in cross-examination. And that is difficult, as I understand it, for civil law system practitioners where that is not the norm. Uh, now, Having said all of this by way of introduction, the difference in English and French, it's worth uh, uh, going on and actually analysing who these defence lawyers are, because you may be surprised to know that over 60% of all the assigned lawyers at the ICTY over its uh, uh, history, that's 161 um, people who've been indicted, over 60% of the defence lawyers, in fact, come from the Balkans. Now, the court give them an allowance and allow them to advocate in their own language. Um, I, I was always told it was an allowance rather than a rule because the rule is that one's actually meant to use English or French. Practically, it's an allowance that the court can afford to meet, to, to, uh, uh, to uh, come to, for the simple reason that, uh, of course, there are simultaneous translators, or in, in fact in three languages, English, French, and the language of the accused. Uh, and, and save for uh, Kosovan Albanians, I'm going to come to them in a moment, uh, 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 all the three ethnicities, or main ethnicities of the former Yugoslavia, all spoke the same language. So it meant that uh, um, uh, it they, they could use those translators. So the vast majority of these Balkan lawyers used their own language. What's slightly more alarming is that, in fact, uh, the ethnicity of the lawyer was almost invariably the ethnicity of the accused person. So in other words, uh, if a Serbian lawyer Serbian accused, beg your pardon, was going to have a Balkan lawyer, it would invariably be a Serb, likewise a Croat, and likewise a Bosnian Muslim. I know of one exception to that, actually, though there is one exception that I could name where that didn't happen, but otherwise, if they chose as one of their lawyers a lawyer from the Balkans, it would be a lawyer of the same ethnicity as them. And that is interesting because in, here in England that of course would be a very serious disciplinary matter. 
be regarded as completely and utterly unacceptable. And if a solicitor, by way of example, and that's a crude example, rang up my chambers tomorrow and said, I want a white barrister to do this case, then my clerks would simply say, I'm afraid I cannot countenance further discussion so far as this is concerned. You're in breach of all these rules and you can't behave in that particular manner. So uh, uh, um, it's uh, quite stark. Now, it's, I said I'd come back to the um, Kosovo Albanians because it's interesting. We've got Paul Troop here who has represented a Kosovo Albanian. They always struck me as rather more sensible than uh, some of the other ethnicities because invariably they did not choose lawyers of their own ethnicity. In fact, invariably they chose lawyers who were either... English or American. Uh, and uh, I often wondered why the other defendants uh, didn't do that, because uh, generally, generally, the quality of the English and American lawyers was better. There weren't very many Kosovo and Albanian defendants, in fairness, uh, certainly very few compared to the number of Serbs. But uh, it's worth reflecting briefly a bit further on the profound effect of the fact that over 60% of the defence lawyers uh, come from the Balkans. Now, there are some plus sides, I want to be fair. I mean, first of all, of course, the client is much more likely to trust his or her lawyer. Uh, there's going to be a greater bond. The fact that they can speak to their lawyer freely in their own language in cases which are going to go on for years where one's bound to build up a relationship and a rapport between client and lawyer is important. Uh, secondly, um, the lawyers are more likely to understand the case, at least to begin with, because most, if not all of them, will have lived through the war. They'll have un understand the background to it and they will understand uh, 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 some of the things that are at stake. Um, thirdly, in my experience, and I'm quite well placed to mention this because I, my first case I did in an all-English team and my second I did in a mixed team. Um, investigation in the field is definitely, in my view, better uh, when one has um, a, a, a local uh, lawyer uh, on the team. Now, there, again, there may, may be exceptions to that. If, if one has a very good rapport with a local investigator, then that's one thing. But generally speaking, having a local lawyer uh, who understands the region is, is a, an advantage in terms of investigation, uh, not necessarily doing it personally, but through investigators. Well, there are, of course, downsides. One that I've already alluded to, and I'm not going to spend long on, standards. Second, it doesn't let other people in. Um, thirdly, uh, um, they're more likely that uh, the Balkan lawyer will, for whatever reason, be prepared to engage in some sort of political grandstanding. Uh, and finally, though I never saw any evidence of this whatsoever. The ICTY continually believed that fee splitting was a serious problem among Balkan lawyers. That is, that the client will say, uh, you can represent me, but you will give my family 25% or whatever of the fee, strictly forbidden. 
Uh, I want to emphasise I personally never saw any uh, 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 any um, evidence of that, but there was widespread rumours abound that that went on, and indeed uh, we little doubt that uh, the UN had some sort of investigative unit to try and look into it, but of course it would be very hard to prove anyway. Um, brief final comment on lawyers. So far as uh, the future is concerned, it seemed to me very much, and I've already alluded to this, that the best thing would be a, 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 some sort of hybrid team. That is, when you assign two counsel, have one counsel as a local lawyer, someone who comes from the same system as the accused person, speaks the language of the accused person, uh, understands um, his or her background on the one hand, but also a, a foreign lawyer. At the ICTY, as I say, generally it would be a common, an English-speaking common lawyer. This certainly doesn't have to be. depends on the situation, depends on the facts of the case, depends on the language. Uh, that's, of course, what they have done in Cambodia, where I think that is a, it's a rule, and they operate in that particular way. And I think, to a large extent, most of the teams that have been selected at the uh, uh, Lebanon Tribunal uh, fall into that particular category. So uh, that really is what I wanted to say uh, about um, defence lawyers. I next wanted to move on briefly and look at the defendants themselves, because it, it follows from um, everything I've said that being a defence lawyer, one is inevitably uh, going to get to know one's clients well in these very long trials. And a thing I tend to emphasise, particularly when I'm speaking to groups of young um, English lawyers, is that defendants at the ICTY are about as radically different to domestic, to, to, to most domestic defendants as one could imagine. Because defendants at the ICTY are generally uh, people of, uh, who are well educated, highly intelligent, and many were very powerful in their past lives, and it's because of the power that they had that it's put them in the dock of the court. Uh, and they're not easy people to represent uh, because they are, can be manipulative. They're certainly very demanding. They're extremely knowledgeable about their case. And, and that particularly, uh, I think, is an issue if you're a, a foreign lawyer representing one of them. They're going to always know far more about their case than you will ever know, even if you spend every working minute uh, trying to grasp the case, they're going to know more about it. Uh, and what's really important and significant is what they want to achieve from the case, because what they want to achieve is often not what um, the lawyer wants to achieve. Yes, the lawyer wants to try and achieve an acquittal, a not guilty verdict, but they're aware that the trial, this is the defendant they're engaged in, that's going to be an issue. But they have two other agendas, uh, in, in my uh, opinion. The second agenda is they know that the trial, to some extent, is going to be a trial of history. This is where history is going to be recorded. Uh, and they want to put a, their side of the story across. And they want history to um, 
remember what they have to say and their side of the argument. And it's worth remembering, going back to my guilt and innocence point, many of them are very realistic. They, they, are, they know, I suspect, that their chances of acquittal are slim, and in some cases their chances of being released are slim. So uh, why not uh, uh, try and put history right? And their third point really fo follows from that. Some of them uh, still want to influence public opinion back in the Balkans, particularly amongst their own ethnic group, and that's very important to them. And the trial can fulfill that purpose, not least because you probably know all the trials are uh, available on the internet, and the more interesting and more prestigious ones are actually shown on television, uh, at least in part, back in different parts of the Balkans. So it is worth uh, bearing all of that in mind when you think about the defendants. And the third component that I want to talk about are the judges. Because again, rather like the lawyers, um, variable quality and very varied background. And of course that's inevitable. There are two types of judges. There are permanent judges and there are ad litem judges. The method of election via the General Assembly of the United Nations and no doubt there's a fair amount of political pressure involved in that in the General Assembly deciding who the, was going to be elected. This was some time ago I should say because obviously as the tribunal is in its closing stages um, who's going to be uh, 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 these elections were some years ago but nonetheless it clearly had influence on, on who the pool of judges were. Now, specifically, some had domestic judicial experience, but many did or do not. Some are diplomats, generally with a legal background. Many are academics. Many come from countries with lamentable human rights records. That's even today. Others for example, were career judges from a young age, as is typical in the civil system, and had therefore been judges in states that had formerly been authoritarian and sometimes totalitarian. And I would be able to give specific examples. Uh, indeed, one, the ICTY is relatively open about this in one sense, because each of the judges has a CV on the ICTY website, that's how I know this ostensibly, so if one looks at the CV one can work these things out and it is quite interesting when you appear in front of a judge or even if the judge you're not appearing in front of to think about their background. An additional small problem is there's no retirement age so it's a particularly attractive job for someone who would have to have retired in their own domestic jurisdiction but doesn't have to retire at the ICTY. So there have been some rather old judges, certainly far older than would be able to operate here in England. Um, so the variability manifests itself in a large number of practical ways. I'd like to deal with a few specific but important examples. Uh, and the first that would come to anyone's mind who's looking at the ICTY today, is the present mess in relation to international criminal law, so far as the specific direction as an element in aiding and abetting is concerned. 
And you may know that um, there are five judges in the ICTY appeals chamber. And by a four to one majority, they decided that specific direction was such an element. And that led directly to Moncello Perisic's acquittal on appeal on the 28th of February of last year. Now, Perisic was a particularly important accused person. He was the former head of the Yugoslav army, the VJ, effectively, so, so Milosevic's army, so effectively the head of the Serbian army at the time of the Bosnian Civil War from 92 to 95. And crimes he was alleged to have committed involved really giving support to the Bosnian Serbs through that war, including Srebrenica. So he was convicted at trial, but was acquitted on appeal, largely because of this specific direction point, which is an extremely important one in any event, in practical terms, in international criminal law. Then on the 23rd of January of this year, the appeal chamber in a case called Shrinovich and others, uh, which was a case involving uh, five um, Serbian um, military and top policemen uh, who were alleged to be involved in crimes in Kosovo in the late 1990s, perhaps the early 2000s. They decided that specific direction was not an element in aiding and abetting, and so upheld Shinovich and the others' conviction by a four-to-one majority. Amongst uh, the remarkable facts that exist behind these two decisions is that uh, in one case, one judge was in the majority on both occasions. Uh, and she has not said it, 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 why she changed her mind in that period of a year. And this has now led to the Office of the Prosecutor making an application to reopen Perisic's case, and that was on the 3rd of February of this year, something which is probably, uh, uh, I'd be surprised if they're given leave, there seems to be no legal basis whatsoever in the rules. But it leads to uncertainty, uh, and it leads, frankly, I'd go further, ultimately, to ridicule. It's a terrible advert for the ICTY, and it's entirely the making of the judges. Another point, rather more general one, that, that, that concerns me particularly as, 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 a, as a practitioner, I mean, I... I something I would more be more interested in, was sentencing. Sentencing was far too inconsistent. There were insufficient guidelines. Yes, there are guidelines that relate to aggravating and mitigating factors, which were set out in previous decisions, and so the courts have decided what can be an aggravating feature, what can be a mitigating feature, but that's all fine and dandy. But there are no guidelines as to how to deal with the base offence. And so the result is inconsistency, almost a lottery. And indeed, I'm partly saying this because I made this very submission, having been involved in the Srebrenica case myself, to the court. Look at the decisions in quite a large number of Srebrenica cases, because there 
the argument of the court that you've got to look that the, the, the crime base varies and therefore it's difficult to have hard and fast rules simply doesn't apply because there there's one crime base a very awful crime base it, it's got to be said and yet the sentences from different trial pet chambers and then appeals chambers over quite a long period of time are far too inconsistent and simply don't bear sufficient uh, analysis. Now, very much on the English barrister perspective point, and really moving back in one sense in terms of the trial process, is the control of the trials themselves. It followed from what I said earlier that there are in fact very few judges at the ICTY who have had sufficient or any experience of provide, presiding over an adversarial, in effect a common law trial. And the process at the ICTY, I think I've already said this, is indisputably adversarial. And so trials often lack proper management, proper shape, the judge stamping his or her authority over the proceedings. And um, that, in, to my mind, can be seriously problematic. Uh, I want to be fair. Uh, some of those who haven't or didn't come from common law backgrounds have, in fact, because they've been there quite a long time, become adept or reasonably adept at controlling the proceedings and have got the hang of it, at least to some extent. Overall, this particular topic of, of, of uh, trial process and trial control is a large issue and leads on to a discussion about the length, the cost and grandstanding by parties. Beyond what I've already said, I'm not going to go into that today, but I am firmly of the opinion that much of the blame for the length of the trial, allowing lawyers to grandstand and indeed the resultant and inevitable cost is down to judges, the presiding judge in particular, simply not getting a grip on the case and not saying, this is what we're here to do. Judges are also far too inclined, ironically, they don't quite know they're doing this, to play along with the defendants because they also are quite keen on a historical record. They're keen for their judgments to read in a historical type manner, particularly in the beginning of the judgment, and they also, on occasions, are quite keen to be involved in the search for the truth. The problem is, and this is very much, I want to emphasize the perspective of an English barrister, the problem is that's not what the system is really about. The system is about whether the prosecution have proved the guilt of the accused person in relation to the specific charge beyond reasonable doubt. And historical records, and indeed search of the fact, don't help, and indeed are likely simply to complicate and obfuscate that essential task. Now, uh, my last topic was self-representation. Um, and I could, of course, have dealt with this after I had dealt with the accused persons. Um, very little personal experience of this, but was able to see this at a close distance uh, during my time there. The statute of the ICTY preserves the right 
of self-representation. That's Article 21. Uh, whether this should be a fundamental right is an interesting question, uh, and certainly not for today. What is undoubtedly true is cause the ICTY great problems. It is no coincidence that arguably the three most prominent and best-known politicians to have been tried at the ICTY have chosen to represent themselves. That's Milosevic, Karadzic and Sheshev. In fact, my client, who arguably was the next most prominent, Kryzhnik, chose to represent himself on appeal, albeit um, he was um, able effectively to have uh, him an amicus team, and indeed he was allowed, his, he was allowed Alan Dershowitz to represent him on, on the issue of, uh, of um, joint criminal enterprise. So he sort of had three lawyers, if you include himself. But anyway, that's, that, that, that's a digression. Uh, the other person who's represented himself is, is a Srebrenica general called Ptolemyr, uh, and um, again, a, a very senior general, and, and he's, he represented himself. His appeal is still pending. But as I see it, Milosevic, Karadzic, and Sheshel have basically run rings around the ICTY, and to some extent, the trial chambers who have been trying them. To state the obvious, and it repeats a little bit what I said earlier, these are highly intelligent men who are used to the glare of publicity and understand how to get their messages across. Apart from a realisation that they have little to lose, they're determined to use the trial to put on record how they see history and how they want to be remembered. If that's true of the average defendant, it's true of them even more so. Each have done superbly, arguably, in pushing the registry and the chambers as far as they possibly can to provide them with resources. So they've argued successfully, and this has been affirmed by the trial chamber, that even though they're representing themselves, they're entitled to a fair bit of the legal aid cake. So they get associates, they get assistants, they get legal advisers. Now, again, my English perspective is this is utterly disastrous because we here in England, as I'm sure you know, allow people to represent themselves. But if you turn up and say to the judge, and that's a, 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 a self-representing defendant, uh, well, can't I have a bit of legal aid to help me have a Mackenzie friend? Or can't I have a legal aid, a bit of legal aid to go and carry out some investigations? the judge will laugh and will say, you've got a choice, mate, and your choice is as follows. You can have a lawyer on legal aid, and the lawyer will run your case, or you do it yourself. If you do it yourself, there's no legal aid. Now, again, arguably, the ICTY perspective of providing these resources is very admirable, but what it's done is led down this, the path, the path that I've just described, of, of, of these men being able in many, many ways to manipulate the uh, system. Moving on from that, Milosevic and Karadzic uh, exploited the rules uh, and have persuaded their tr trial chambers to give them as much time as the prosecution. So both have, well, Milosevic is, wasn't quite finished at the point that he died. Karadzic is actually nearing the end now but both have literally had as much time as the Office of the Prosecutor had. And frankly, again, in terms of an adversarial trial, that is patently absurd. 
um, because of the burdens on the prosecution, the prosecution to prove the case, uh, 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 and it's not really the way to go about business. I want to make it clear I'm not blaming uh, uh, Karadzic or Milosevic at all. It's the uh, uh, court that's got this wrong, in my opinion. But arguably the most interesting, and perhaps even the most important, is Sheshel. A man who at the time of his arrest, and indeed through much of his 11 years in custody at the ICDY, has remained a, a, a significant figure in Serbian politics, has a significant minority following in Serbia, and is, as far as I can understand it, a, 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 a figure of some influence. Through tenacity, belligerence, and real willpower, which included a, a very serious hunger strike some years ago where uh, he was, so we were told, on the verge of death when the court eventually caved in to his particular demands at that time. He has succeeded, in my opinion, of making a mockery of much of his trial, where in fact, for reasons I don't completely understand, he in fact didn't run a defence case at all. He's had a bit of luck along the way, but that goes with his tenacity. And the most recent bit of luck, as you may know, was the fact that one of the judges trying his case, Judge Harhoff, has effectively had to leave the tribunal, has been disqualified from uh, being involved in any further tribunal cases uh, because of his written indiscretion, where he wrote a letter to, or an email to various friends of his, where he basically said the tribunal uh, was um, uh, too much under the influence, I think he said, the United States. I, don't, don't, don't quote me on that, as they say. But either way, there was some, there was some email which was discovered. The end result was Harhoff um, was effectively expelled from the ICTY and was thrown off Sheshul's case. Now, that was at the point where that trial chamber were about to deliver judgment. And after a lot of faffing, it was decided, although I don't think the appeals chamber have yet adjudicated upon this, that a replacement judge be appointed. And that replacement judge is going through the process, so we're told, of reading the whole record, but is not going to hear any oral argument at all in relation to the case. A truly absurd situation, which is not of Sheffield's making at all, and makes and I know I've used the word before, but here it seems to be indisputable, a complete mockery of his trial. Meanwhile, Sheshul has spent 11 years in custody. And I read that in a recent filing by the Office of the Prosecutor, they said that in effect he brought this upon himself because he'd never sought provisional release. And he never sought provisional release because he never sought to obtain the necessary guarantees from the government of Serbia that would be a prerequisite for provisional release. Again, my opinion, utterly ridiculous. Uh, And of course, Cheshire has uh, uh, remained in the prison, largely because you may think he wants to portray himself as some sort of martyr, uh, and has been very successful in that regard. I want to make it clear, I'm, the last thing I am is an apologist for any of these people, least of all uh, Mr. Sheshel. But my point is that the ICTY has underestimated them at their peril and has developed a system 
that has allowed for political and historical grandstanding by these accused persons who have quickly become very adept at exploiting the loopholes available to them. Uh, and future tribunals, in my opinion, need to give very careful thought as to how they're going to deal with self-representation, particularly by prominent politicians. Now, I could conclude there, but I'm going to say one or two more words, and it's simply this. When I speak about the ICTY, and I give an occasional talk like this one, I do like to end on a reasonably positive note. Because in my years there, despite what I've said, and despite enormous difficulties and hurdles, overall, I was impressed with much of what I saw, and was impressed with the way the courts ran well and smoothly. Perpetrators of serious crimes were brought to book, victims had a voice, and often there was a coherent system of justice. Thank you.